Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. I want to start the program today by asking the simple question, will enough Americans show up this fall that we can push through all the various forms of voter suppression, including messing with the mails and disinformation that Donald Trump is promoting. Well, enough Americans show up to stop Trump from using the dictator's playbook. This is really an important point, and it's a point that Rachel Maddow made on her show, and it was the first time I'd heard it in the national press. I just finished writing this book about oligarchy and tyranny, and it's front and center there, but I had not seen, I'd be kind of waiting for, but I had not seen anybody in the corporate press talk about this. And now one show has, we'll see if others do, But here it is, the single most consistent defining characteristic of an emerging dictatorship in a country that started as a democracy is that the dictator actually holds elections and typically wins them. In fact, always wins them. That's why he's the dictator. And I'm using the word he because I don't know of any female dictators who have done this. And the way that he does this is by seizing control of the instruments of government that can help him win the election. Not because people love him, but because basically they end up having no choice. I mean, Donald Trump has done this now with the Justice Department, the Post Office, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Federal Reserve, and our intelligence agencies. None of this has ever happened before. This is arguably a massive violation of the Hatch Act, which says you can't use federal resources for election purposes. And, you know, they've been violating the Hatch Act forever. From Kellyanne Conway pitching Ivanka's stuff in front of the White House logo to Donald Trump putting Goya products all over his desk, his daughter Ivanka, you know, uh, doing a photo shoot with Goya products and tweeting. I mean, all this kind of stuff. This is all deeply, profoundly illegal, but, you know, Trump is like pushing it in our face, like, screw you people. We don't care about the law. We don't care about democracy. We only care about power. Over at the Justice Department, Attorney General Bill Barr has said that he intends to investigate Joe Biden. In fact, he's doing it right now, the John Durham investigation and Joe Biden and his son's activities in Ukraine, and that, eh, you know, yeah, maybe just before the election we'll release all this information. Trump has seized control of the post office. He's just over the weekend on Friday decapitated its senior management and has already begun slowing down the mail. People all over the country are complaining that their packages are arriving late. Hell, I sent a couple of books to a friend of mine in Los Angeles two weeks ago via priority mail, and they have not arrived yet. He is slowing down the mail. He's more than doubling the cost for states to send out mail-in ballots. He's, he's telling the states you can no longer mail these things bulk rate, third-class mail. You have to mail them first-class mail. So the price goes from roughly 20 cents to a little over 50 cents. He's gotten the Department of Homeland Security and various factions within their immigration police to challenge protesters for a test run here in Portland. 
and plans to bring that crew to other cities just in time for a massive display of police power uh, during the elections. Trump has directed all reporting on coronavirus statistics away from the Centers for Disease Control and into HHS, an agency run by his toady, Alex Azar. Now hospitals and public health officials, as well as news agencies, can no longer get accurate data on the severity of the pandemic in the United States. Over at the Fed, Trump has installed Jerome Powell, a multimillionaire banker who is not an economist and was on the board of the Carlyle Group. Powell has created about $7 trillion out of thin air and is using it to buy corporate stocks and bonds to maintain the stock market, making it appear that the economy is nowhere near as bad as it is. And when our intelligence agencies first reported that Russia, the source of much of Trump's wealth, according to his own children, was already actively interfering in the 2020 elections, Trump got them to change their assessment to downplay Russia and highlight that China and Iran had a, quote, preference for Biden. He got the intelligence agency to admit the fact that China and Iran are not engaged in active measures, creating the false impression that there was some sort of balance among foreign actors messing with our elections. On top of this, this is where it just gets, it explodes from the realm of obscene to the realm of, I'm lacking adjectives, in a further tip of the hat to his white racist supporters, Donald Trump wants to declare his candidacy for president for re-election while simultaneously symbolically declaring that the Confederacy won at Gettysburg. Gettysburg, you will recall, was uh, referred to by, actually, (laughs) by the federal government's website for Gettysburg, says it was, quote, often referred to as the high watermark of the rebellion. Gettysburg was the Civil War's single bloodiest battle. Now, the South lost at Gettysburg, but Trump wants to go there and proclaim his candidacy, I think, you know, to essentially say to white racists in America, which day by day I'm, I'm discovering to my horror is a larger fraction of white people than I ever imagined, that basically he's reversing the, the Confederacy's loss at, at Gettysburg. One of the points that I make in my new book on oligarchy is that the South lost the Civil War but won the peace. And, you know, that's essentially what Donald Trump is, is ratifying, is certifying. And all of these actions, if you add these all up, no president has ever done these things, right? No president has ever used the Department of Homeland Security or any of our federal police agencies to help his reelection. No president has ever used the Department of Health and Human Services to help him win re-election. No president has ever used the post office or messed with the post office to help him win election. No president has ever manipulated the Federal Reserve to help win an election. No president has ever manipulated our intelligence agencies to win an election. I mean, the closest you can get to that was Nixon back during the 72 election. And this, I'm doing this from memory. I can't find documentation on it, but my recollection is that he was making it harder for reporters in Vietnam to do their job. And that was around the time that Walter Cronkite was pulling his hair out. But that, I mean, that pales in comparison to what Trump is doing. So you add all this stuff up and it becomes fairly clear that Donald Trump doesn't think that he's president of the United States. He believes that he's a tin pot dictator of a third world country. He's been governing that way for three and a half years and now he's campaigning that way. And the question that we're confronting over the next six months between now and January 20th, when the new president should be taking place, you know, or when Trump's presidency officially ends, is whether Trump has taken America so far down this road of oligarchy and tyranny and despotism and fascism, essentially, that we can't recover. I mean, it's going to take tens of millions of us showing up, speaking out, and making sure our votes are counted to stop this train wreck before it utterly destroys the American experiment. And, I mean, there's still months to go. There's still a month or so to go before early voting starts. And we've got all this stuff in place. What more is Donald Trump gonna do? What more are the fascists in the Republican Party willing to do? I don't have the answer to that. You know, obviously time will tell. I have my opinion is that we can still stop this and turn it back if we overwhelmingly show up in the elections. And I think that there's some indications we're going to. But will our ballots be counted? 
I mean, are we, are we seeing America turn into Uzbekistan? Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar, what's on your mind today? Tom, thank you so much for taking my call, and good day to your teammates, and hope they're all well. Tom, are we going to know who's won the presidency the same night or the next day? No, probably not. Probably it'll take, you know, a week or two. And the big fear that, you know, media watchers are expressing is that on election night, we won't have a final winner, but the trend lines, because those will be the, the states that will be reporting instantly on election night, will be the red states that are, are blocking mail-in voting. And those will be states that Trump has won. So there will be a number of Trump victories that will be reported election night. And then it'll take a week or so for all the ballots to be counted. It could even take longer than that in a lot of the other states. And during that time, Trump is going to be every single day saying, I won, I won, I won. I mean, and we're going to see a replay, in my opinion, of the 2000 election with the Brooks Brothers riot and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, don't forget, the big news networks called Florida for Al Gore based on exit polling mm-hmm. yep. and based on yep. the numbers that they were looking at. And, and it turns out when the New York Times and, and the Washington Post actually counted all the ballots a year later, a month, and they released this a month after 9-11, so they kind of toned it down. But basically what they found was that by any way of counting the ballots, Al Gore won Florida. So the election was stolen, unambiguously stolen yeah, in, I remember in, that, that. in that time. So I, you know, I, I just think well. he's going to try and repeat that. And you know who was involved in that, who was down there in Florida and who was helping out with the Brooks Brothers riots and who was also helping and write the draft for the Bush v. Gore thing was Kavanaugh and John Roberts. Kavanaugh oh, and John wow. Roberts. And oh, George W. Bush rewarded Roberts by putting him on the Supreme Court and Donald Trump rewarded Kavanaugh. Yeah, he's a good soldier. He's done this before. Omar, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Dion in Chicago. Hey, Dion, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Yeah, it's going to be interesting what the farmer donors in the Trump administration had to gain up until now until election season. I saw that some of the top donors are heavily invested in hydrochloricine, like Novartis, Tava, and Bayer. Mm-hmm. So what's your point, Dion? I think it's possible that Trump is going to try to get this approved by election season, and then he's going to be hailed as the savior for COVID-19, and then the celebration ribbons come down. Yeah. He's already tried that with hydrochloroquine. And and he, by the way, you know, three of the Trump family uh, trusts or whatever were heavily invested in, what is it, Sinoval, the French company that makes hydrochloroquine? Yeah. Um, uh, Sinophil. You know, I'm doing that from memory. But, you know, I think that that moment has passed. My guess is that what we will see is something like what Russia is doing right now, which is saying we've got a vaccine. We haven't tested it on a large number of people for safety or efficacy. But what the hell? We're going to roll it out right now. And, you know, that Trump is going to lean on the uh, Food and Drug Administration to approve a vaccine that, that, you know, may be kind of sketchy and may cause a lot of death and a lot. I mean, this, you know, this happened during Jerry Ford's presidency. We had a flu virus that looked like it was going to be really nasty. They rolled out a vaccine for it. And the vaccine we didn't discover until it was almost six months to a year later that we started noticing, the epidemiologists started noticing that large numbers of people were getting a neurological disease uh, called Guillain-Barre syndrome, as I recall. Did you know that Ronald Reagan committed treason to become president in 1980 and George Herbert Walker Bush was in on it and he avoided being prosecuted for this in 1992 with a little help from Bill Barr? It's on page 116 of my book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Uh, this is just this is just crazy. You know uh, what what Donald Trump is doing. Every single one of the four things that he claims he did by executive order, he didn't actually do. And in the process, he's also you know kneecapping Social Security. And then Steve Mnuchin on Fox News. This is exactly what he said. This is our Treasury Secretary, the guy who threw thousands of people out of their homes during the foreclosure crisis back when he was a banker in California. Now he's in charge of all our money. And basically doing the same thing. He says it's a payroll tax suspension. 
not a payroll tax cut. Actually, that's what Chris Wallace said. It's payroll tax suspension. And, and Mnuchin says, well, the president wanted to do a payroll tax cut, but we could do the payroll tax deferral. And he's going to the American people and telling them that when he's reelected, he'll push through legislation to forgive that. So in essence, it'll turn into a payroll tax cut. And then Chris Wallace says, well, what about cutting Social Security and Medicare? You're stopping the the payroll taxes, what funds Social Security and Medicare. And Mnuchin says, well, there would be an automatic contribution from the general fund to those trust funds. You would just have to transfer from the general fund. We'll deal with the budget deficit when we get the economy back to where it was before. Now, let me make this very, very clear to you. What the Republicans have been doing, this game that the Republicans have playing goes back to 1977 when Jude Wininsky published a piece in the, in the Wall Street Journal suggesting the two Santa Claus strategy. He said for years and years and years, ever since the Great Depression, ever since FDR, the Democrats have been the party of Santa Claus. They gave Americans unemployment benefits, the Democrats. They gave Americans Medicare. They gave Americans Social Security. They gave Americans workplace safety standards. The Democrats gave Americans food safety standards. The Democrats gave Americans drug safety standards. The Democrats basically you know, gave Americans all this stuff and the Republicans said no at every stage. I mean, even no to seatbelts. Remember that in the 70s? No to seatbelts. I mean, the Republicans were always the party of no. So, so Jude Wininsky says the, Ameri- you know, the, the Republicans need to figure out how to be a Santa Claus because Americans like to vote for Santa Claus. And they also need to figure out how to force the Democrats to shoot Santa Claus. And their main Santa Claus is uh, Social Security and Medicare. So how do you do that? Well, it turns out, uh, you know, as June Wininsky suggested, what Republicans should do is become the tax cut Santa Claus. When they have power, when there's a Republican in the White House, cut taxes like there's no tomorrow. Run that budget deficit up by trillions of dollars. And then as soon as a Democrat comes into the White House, starts screaming about the budget deficit. Now, in the second part of it, of this program today, I'm going to go through in detail exactly what Donald Trump is right now setting up to throw America into a worse depression than the Great Depression starting the day after Joe Biden is declared the winner in the election or the day after he's sworn in, one or the other. It'll be up to Trump when he wants to pull the switch. But he is going to throw America into a mind-boggling depression. And I will get into all the details of that. But with regard to this, this is, you know, Steve Mnuchin just said, we're going to do the two Santa Claus theory. And the second part of it, you cut taxes, then you scream about the budget deficit. And then in order to fix the budget deficit, you cut social spending after you've cut taxes on billionaires. So here Mnuchin says, first of all, we're not going to have a protected fund for Social Security anymore. It's going to be paid out of the general fund, in other words, out of regular taxes. So we're going to convert Social Security and Medicare into welfare programs, number one, so we can cut them. And number two, if Trump gets reelected, if Republicans hold on to power, then we are going to start screaming about the budget deficit. Now, we've just moved Social Security into the general fund, and now the general fund is in deficit because of tax cuts. So how are we going to solve that problem? Well, we're going to cut Social Security. And here's exactly what he said. He said, you just have to transfer Social Security to the general fund. We'll deal with the budget deficit when we get the economy back to where it was before. Well, how do Republicans deal with budget deficits? By cutting social programs, like Social Security. I mean, Reagan did that back in 1983. He made Social Security income taxable. He changed the formula by which Social Security is calculated. So every year since 1983, people on Social Security, inflation adjusted, get a little less money. I mean, actually it goes up, but it's less than inflation. And so, you know, it's functionally less. Meanwhile, Trump is trying to open all the schools, right? Marco Rubio just came out and said, the good news is, he said, any setting in which people interact will lead to infections. The good news is these infections, infected students are at very low risk for complications. Actually, nearly 100,000 children in the United States tested positive for COVID in the last two weeks of July. In Lake Tahoe, Corley Howard, a father of a 10-year-old, is begging the local city council not to let more tourists into the town because his 10-year-old son, Mason, is in the hospital with COVID. 
kids are, he has inflammation of the heart, lungs, brain, and digestive system, along with fever, vomiting, and body pain. Healthy, not obese, you know, 10-year-old. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. In Lake Tahoe, for God's sake. He, he began vomiting on July 28th and ended up in the hospital four days later. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two ends, or enter the code Hartman, the two ends, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. On this week's Science Revolution, is a drug maker sitting on a possible COVID-19 cure just due to greed? Dr. Stephen Anstrop, chief scientist for Polar Bears International is here. Could polar bears be lost by 2100? Food and Water Watch's Tony Corbo dissects Cory Booker's bill to protect meat packers and why it's important. In Geeky Science, we'll talk about why the coronavirus vaccine may not work well for obese people. Now that's a big problem. And lastly, Michelle Obama speaks about anxiety during the pandemic and what we can all do. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. I wanted to talk to you about the, the, what I believe is the great crash coming. I've referenced this before on this program, but I think it deserves a, a little deeper drill down because I think, you know, this is a big deal. 
Uh, Congressman Ken Buck, for example, you know, he's a Republican. He came out and he said the actual national debt of the United States is $30 trillion. And everybody's going, oh, I thought it was $20 trillion, you know, $22 trillion, whatever it is. We're adding $2.7 trillion so far this year. Just in June, it was $864 billion was the deficit. That's what a normal year is. Keep in mind, when Reagan came into office and started this whole two Santa Claus starve the beast thing, the national debt was less than a trillion dollars. By the time Reagan left office, it was almost two and a half trillion dollars. Now we're looking at $30 trillion, but he's including, what he's including in this, the number that he's including in this is the $7 trillion that the Fed has created out of thin air to buy corporate bonds and corporate stocks to prop up the stock market. So if the Fed hadn't done that, then the stock market today, right now, would probably be in the neighborhood of where it was, you know, in the weeks or months after the recovery began from the George W. Bush crash of 2008, the last Republican crash. You know, maybe 12,000, 15,000. I mean, it got all the way down to around 6,000. But, you know, it'd probably be in the neighborhood of 12,000. And the only reason that it is where it has been for the last year or so, more or less, you know, the mid-20s, the only reason it's there is because the Fed is buying stocks. And the only reason that anybody else is buying the stocks, and a lot of these corporations, like the airlines, for example, where you know, not only are they losing money hand over fist, but they're probably going to continue to do so for years to come. The only reason anybody's buying those stocks is, and in fact, for that matter, the only reason these companies can continue to operate is because they've been able to borrow money. They've been able to issue bonds, which is, you know, debt instruments. Corporations issue a bond. You know, United Airlines needs a billion dollars. So they write a billion dollars with the IOUs. They, these IOUs are called bonds. But somebody has to buy those IOUs. And if nobody will buy them and thus loan that money to United Airlines, United Airlines stops operating. So the Fed is buying them right now. Now, the Fed is being run by a guy by the name of Jerome Powell. Jerome Powell is the first Fed chairman. He was put into place by Donald Trump. He's the first Fed chairman since, I think, the end of the Carter administration, basically in 40 years. I think we had one guy for two years who was, uh, in fact, he was a Republican during a Democratic administration. And I want to say Bill Cohen, but I think he was the defense secretary. But in any case, we had one guy who was not an economist. But, but Jerome Powell is not an economist. So what's Jerome Powell's background? Well, he's worth tens of millions of dollars, you know, 50 to 70 million dollars. He's, or very wealthy, actually. We don't know exactly because, you know, it's always, you know, all these disclosure forms are in ranges. But he's very wealthy. How did he get rich? He was an investment banker. He's not an economist. His bachelor's degree is in political science. And then he got a law degree. He's a bankster. He was one of the managing directors. He was on the board of the Carlisle Group. Remember the Carlisle Group that George Herbert Walker Bush took a job as CEO of after he left the White House so that the defense industry could pay him back? Well, Jerome Powell was, that's how he got rich, is in the Carlisle Group. So he's a banker, not an economist. So you've got a banker running the Fed. The federal legislation from 1913 that created the Fed, nowhere in there does it say that the Fed may buy stocks or corporate bonds. It authorizes the, the Fed to buy federal treasuries. This is how the Fed regulates interest rates, is by buying and selling federal treasuries, changing the demand for treasuries, which changes the interest rate that has to be paid in order to, to you know, get people to buy treasuries. But buying corporate bonds, no. But nonetheless, for the first time in the 107-year history of the Federal Reserve Bank, the Fed has been buying, has, you know, they, they created $7 trillion out of thin air, which the Fed can do, right? If you look at, your, at the paper money in your pocket, it doesn't say, you know, treasury note. It doesn't as it used to. 
before 1913. It doesn't say U.S. money. It says Federal Reserve note. The Fed can create as much money as it wants. They've created $7 trillion and bought corporate bonds and corporate stocks with that. Not all of it, but you know, a good chunk of it. So what happens on, say, November 10th or November 20th, you know, when all the votes finally get counted, all the mail-in ballots and everything, and it is declared that Donald Trump won the election? What does Jerome Powell do? My theory is that at that point, Jerome Powell says, well, okay, the next guy in is probably going to replace me, although I'm not sure that they can do that. Well, that's a whole other discussion. But Trump did with Janet Yellen. But in any case, he's probably going to say, or he's, you know, we know that he dances to the tune of Donald Trump. And what's Donald Trump's favorite game? Revenge. And who does Donald Trump hate? The majority of Americans who didn't vote for him. The millions of Americans who showed up in the streets the day after his inauguration, the women in particular, African-Americans and their allies who were out in the streets after George Floyd was murdered by four cops in Minneapolis. Who does Donald Trump hate? The majority of America. So what does he do? Well, after Joe Biden is declared the winner, Trump tells Powell, stop buying bonds and stocks. In fact, start selling your bonds and stocks. And what happens over the course of the next week, the Fed does that and the stock market goes down to 6,000, which is where it was after the crash in 2008, after Bush's crash. In fact, it might even go lower than that because things are far worse than they were. This isn't just a, a problem of, you know, bad loans for home mortgages. This is systemic. This is the entire economy. Let's say the, the Dow goes to 5,000 or 4,000. I mean, a real 1929 style collapse which, by the way, took six months to happen. And this will be, what, six months on from it getting really bad? And then all the media and all the press and Trump and everybody, they go out in front of the cameras and they say, well, the market has its own intelligence. And, uh, you know, Democrats were elected to take over the White House and the Senate and the House of Representatives. And therefore, the market knows that they're going to raise taxes and destroy the economy. So how do we deal with this? I think the way that we deal with this is by inoculating America to it, by telling everybody you know right now that Donald Trump is going to crash the economy if a Democrat is elected. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So the blame will be placed squarely where it belongs. Meanwhile, Bill Barr is talking about urban guerrilla warfare. More about that in a minute. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. NetSuite.com slash Hartman. That's NetSuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? 
Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Hey, it's Tom Harbin. We're reading from A Dark Money, the hidden history of the billionaires behind the rise of the radical right in today's Tom Harbin University Book Club. This is from Chapter 11, page 271. The official opening of the 112th Congress took place on January 5th, 2011, when Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, handed off an oversized ceremonial gavel to her successor, John Boehner. But a new era of ultra-conservative billionaire influence had already begun. Before the public swearing-in ceremony got underway, David Koch, whose donor network had spent at least $130.7 million on winning a Republican majority, was in the new Speaker-to-be's ornate office chatting amiably with his staff. The People's House was under new management, and critics would suggest new ownership. While Koch was a very public presence on the Capitol, his political adjutant, Tim Phillips, the president of Americans for Prosperity, was deep in the inner sanctum of the congressional committee that mattered most to the bottom line of Koch Industries. Phillips's most important destination that day was the House Energy and Commerce Committee, which under the new Republican majority had now increased its power to block President Obama's environmental agenda in Congress. The committee could bury progress on climate change and harass the EPA for the foreseeable future. In Plutocrats, the rise of the new global super-rich and the fall of everyone else, journalist Krista Freeland describes how those with massive financial resources almost universally use them to secure politics and policies beneficial to their interests, often at the expense of the less well-off. In the United States, a number of studies have shown that in recent years, this tendency has distorted politics in very specific ways. In a study he conducted for the nonpartisan Sunlight Foundation, the political scientist Lee Drutman found that increasingly concentrated wealth in America resulted in more polarization and extremism, especially on the right. Very rich benefactors in the Republican Party were far more opposed to taxes and regulations than the rest of the country. He discovered the more Republicans depend upon 1% of the 1% donors, the more conservative they tend to be. The 112th Congress soon unfolded as a case study of what David Frum, an advisor to the former President George W. Bush, described as the growing and, in his view, destructive influence of the Republican Party's radical rich. The radicalization of the party's donor base, he observed, has propelled the party to advocate policies that were more extreme than anything since Barry Goldwater and his 1964 presidential campaign. It also led Republicans in Congress to try tactics they would never have dared use before, end quote. Hard data supported this. Harvard's Theta Scott poll found that the House took the biggest leap to the far right since political scientists began recording quantitative measurements of legislators' positions. There was no better example than the Koch's newly won influence over the House Energy and Commerce Committee. In the previous Congress, the panel had been chaired by Henry Waxman, the liberal Democrat from California, who had quarterbacked the House's successful passage of the cap-and-trade bill, only to see it die in the Senate. Now the new Republican leadership stocked the committee with oil industry advocates, many of whom owed huge campaign debts to the Kochs. Koch Industries' PAC was the single largest oil and gas industry donor to members of the panel, outspending even ExxonMobil. It had donated to 22 of the committee's 31 Republican members and five of its Democratic members, too. In addition, five out of the six Republican freshmen on the committee had received outside support 
from Americans for Prosperity. Meanwhile, many of the new committee members had signed an unusual pledge swearing fealty to the Koch's agenda. They promised to vote against any kind of carbon tax unless it was offset by comparable spending cuts, an unlikely scenario. The no climate tax pledge was invented by Americans for Prosperity in 2008, when the Supreme Court cleared the way for the EPA to regulate greenhouse gases as it does other pollutants. The Koch's pledge was modeled on the enormously successful one that the anti-tax crusader Grover Norquist had used to intimidate Republican lawmakers from raising taxes. In this instance, it served not a cause so much as a company. By the start of the legislative session in 2011, fully 156 members of Congress had signed the Koch brothers' No Climate Tax Pledge. Many returning members of the House Energy and Commerce Committee had already taken the pledge, and of the 12 new Republicans on the panel, nine were signatories, including five of the six freshmen. A prime example of the symbiotic relationship between the Kochs and the committee was Morgan Griffith, who had defeated Rick Boucher in the district that represented Saltville, Virginia, and was among the new wave of appointees to the Energy and Commerce Committee who were openly indebted to the Koch brothers for their seats. Americans for Prosperity operatives were guests of honor at a victory rally soon after the election, at which Griffith gushed, quote, I'm just thankful that you all helped me out in so many ways, end quote. The Koch's investments soon paid off. Once in office, Griffith became an outspoken skeptic of mainstream climate science, drawing national ridicule for lecturing scientific experts as they testified before Congress that they needed to consider the possibility that Mesopotamia and the Vikings owed their success to global warming, and the melting ice caps on Mars showed that humans were not its cause on Earth. Republican, Congressman Griffith became a lead player in the House Republicans' war on the EPA, demanding that the agency be reined in. Within a month after he took office, he and other House Republicans gutted the EPA budget by a t- punishing 27%. Dark money, the hidden history of the billionaires behind the rise of the radical right, Jane May. G.S. in Lake Tahoe, California. Hey, G.S., what's up? Very good. Thank you. I'd like to reference Article 2 of the Constitution, Section 1.6. I won't read it all completely, but I'd like to see Donald Trump, Trump shamed out of office. I'd like to see him resign. There have to be a lot of pressure put on him to do that. It's probably impossible. But also, perhaps, the inability of him to discharge the powers and duties of his office. You know, he's just not cutting it, and he's doing a lot of things that are injurious to the people. I'll leave it at that. Interested in your thoughts. Thank you. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right, G.S., and yeah, I would love to see him shamed out of office. The problem is he has no shame. I mean, he's, yeah. he's just, and he knows that if he leaves office, he may be subject to prosecution, although I think that that's probably inevitable. Uh, probably what he's trying to prevent is prosecution of his daughter and sons, but we'll see. G.S., thank you. Spot on. Lois in Sacramento. Hey, Lois, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Yes. Here's an example of the problems with the post office. I live in Sacramento. I have a cousin down in Los Angeles. He sent me a package priority mail, which is normally probably three days to get it delivered if you're in the same state. That worse. Yeah. I haven't gotten the package, and it's been over a week. Wow. No sign of it. He tried to call to check. He couldn't get through. It's a big problem. People yeah. pay attention. Something needs to be done about the situation with the post office. I mean, what can we do? Yeah. What can we do? And now, Louis DeJoy, the new, postmaster, the new postmaster general, has suggested. DeJoy, yeah. I, I don't believe he has yet put it into, into, into place. Yeah, he's a businessman from, as I recall, North Carolina. What he has suggested is that when states mail out ballots... Right now, because they are mailed, you know, thousands at a time and they're pre-sorted and pre-bundled, that qualifies them for third-class bulk mail rates, junk mail rates, which is around 20 cents per letter. He wants to say that no matter how well they're bundled or pre-sorted, none of that matters. Uh, If it's a ballot, it's first-class mail, it's 50 whatever, 55 cents or whatever first-class mail is these days, which is going to more than double, almost triple the cost to mail out ballots to every state in the union. Oh, my goodness. We're yeah. in trouble. Yeah, this is this is war. I mean, this is these guys. These guys are playing by what they believe to be the rules of war. You know, all's fair and war and love and war. And 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 the Democrats are dealing are, are not dealing with it like a war. They're dealing with it like a uh, uh, you know a debate. 
you know, a <laughs> discussion. It's like high school debate team. And, oh, yeah. and uh, you know, they, they really, really need to take this to the mattress. I mean, this is a war. Uh, Louis DeJoy, he just moved 33 executives out of senior management at the post office and replaced them with no. toadies. You know, presumably will do everything they can to destroy the post office so that it will make sense, in quotes, uh, in scare quotes, to privatize it. Lois, thank you for the call. I, I appreciate it. I'm sorry to hear about your package. That is a package from a friend. What if it was the medication that you have to take? What if you were a diabetic and if you go one day without your insulin, you die? And it's coming by mail. You can support our program by supporting the station you're listening to right now and thanking our sponsors for advertising with us. Hi, Tom Hartman here. In my new book, The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream, I'll be taking you from the birth of America as a revolt against monopoly, remember the Boston Tea Party, to the largely successful efforts of both Presidents Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt and other like-minded leaders to constrain corporations' monopolistic urges, to the massive changes in the rules of business starting during the Reagan Revolution that have brought us into the cancer stage of capitalism. In the foreword by Ralph Nader, he says, this is the most important dynamic book on the cancers of monopoly by giant corporations written in our generation, end quote. It's the fourth in my Hidden History series. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy starts with you. Tag, you're it. So uh, to slightly change subjects, although this is all, you know, this all falls into the category of crimes against humanity, crimes against democracy, crimes against the United States of America. Bill Barr was interviewed over the weekend on Fox News's Life, Liberty and Levin, Mark Levin's show, one of my colleagues in talk radio who now has a TV show on Fox News. And Bill Barr said this, he said, he's speaking of Black Lives Matter and the people who are out protesting the murder of George Floyd. And I quote, they are a revolutionary group that is interested in some form of socialism, communism. They're essentially Bolsheviks. Their tactics are fascistic. He said Black Lives Matter protests are a new form of urban guerrilla warfare. He, he went on to say, quote, the way the guerrilla hides out among the people as a fish in the ocean. But what they do is essentially shielding themselves or shrouding themselves in First Amendment activity, says Barr. And then they go to the demonstrations, which are exercising First Amendment activity, and they insinuate themselves in there to shield themselves. That's where they swim. And what they do is they hijack these demonstrations and they provoke violence. Right. So what are the police doing about this? Well, this is where it gets a little chilling. This from uh, Microsoft uh, News, I think is what MSN stands for, MSN.com. Cadella Rahman writing, the headline, police are monitoring Black Lives Matter protests with ring doorbell data and drones. Now, just think about that for a minute. You have one of these doorbells, these ring doorbells from Amazon. Well, it turns out the police are monitoring them. Again, reading this. Amazon's Ring doorbell cameras, drones, and a number of other surveillance technologies are being used by law enforcement agencies to monitor communities across the U.S., including Black Lives Matter protests. The Amazon Ring has video sharing partnerships with more than 1,300 law enforcement agencies across the United States. Now, there aren't even 1,300 cities in the United States. I mean, there's basically about 200 cities in the United States that are large enough to be called cities. But Amazon has cut deals with 1,300 law enforcement agencies, including the Los Angeles Police Department, the St. Louis Police Department, the Metro Louisville Police Department. And I say those because, you know, in Louisville, you got the Breonna Taylor demonstrations. In uh, L.A., it's been Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, and George Floyd. And uh, in St. Louis, I mean, going all the way back to Michael Brown, right? And what this does is, quote, allows the department special access to Amazon Ring's Neighbors app, which provides users with crime and safety alerts. They are also using facial recognition. That's used by more than 350 law enforcement agencies. 
So they know when you leave your house, they know when you come back, they know what you look like when you leave the house and you come back. If there's a demonstration in front of your house, they can see it on your Ring doorbell camera. I am hoping that Amazon comes out with some sort of statement or declaration saying, you know, we're going to do something about this. We don't think it's right. But, you know, I mean, this is totally weird. If I had an Amazon Ring doorbell, and, and, and by the way, we don't know. I mean, there's other brands that compete with Amazon, and they may well have deals with, with the police departments, too. It's just that Amazon has been more transparent about this. You know, we've got a security camera at our house. It points at our front door rather than out from our front door, although it also has a view out from our front door. But it's, well, God only knows. I mean, maybe it's being monitored by the police, too. You know, I mentioned that I think that uh, Trump is going to crash the economy. Um, Sven Henrik is a, uh, a guy who tweets mostly about economic stuff. He says, in the last 12 months, the Fed has injected, remember I told you the Fed has created $7 trillion of funny money and given it to corporations in the form of bonds and buying stock, which you know, allows the executives to exercise their stock options and take millions and millions of dollars in, billions of dollars in compensation. Well, this guy, he, uh, Sven Henrik, he writes, in the last 12 months, the Fed has injected the equivalent of nearly $10,000 per U.S. citizen into financial markets. And Congress is squabbling about $600 in unemployment checks. It's true. $7 trillion a year. You know, there's 340 million of us. $7 trillion. Actually, that's almost $20,000 per citizen, isn't it? If I'm doing my math right. I think he divides $7 trillion by $340 million. And as you probably well know, I don't do math on the fly very, very well, but I think that would be about twenty grand, And that's how bad it will get if, after the election, when the press and everybody else says, yes, the Democrats won, they've retained control of the House, they've taken control of the Senate, you know, Amy McGrath has replaced Mitch McConnell, knock wood, right? And Joe Biden is president, and uh, therefore the economy is crashing. Well, the therefore is that Trump has ordered Jerome Powell and Steve Mnuchin to basically crash the economy. He's going to burn it down on his way out. He's doing exactly what my friend Armin Lehman saw Adolf Hitler doing at the end of the war. Burn it down on your way out. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I mean, it's mind-boggling. How do you think it's going to play out? You think I'm wrong here? Just a heads up that I'm doing two book events. You know, normally when I show up in a town, you know, to do a book signing, the way that you hear what I have to say is by showing up at the bookstore. Well, you know, these are different times. And, you know, it used to be if you didn't live in that town, you couldn't even get to the bookstore. We are doing virtual events, live virtual events, August 25th with Powell's here in Portland. David Corton, in fact, is going to be talking with me. And in Seattle, with Seattle Town Hall, again, a live virtual event. That'll be Friday, September 4th. So just a heads up on that. Ralph Nader wrote of this new book. It's called The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream. He said, this is the most important dynamic book on the cancers of monopoly by giant corporations written in our generation. Tom Harbin here with you. It is getting very, very strange out there. For example, there is uh, one of Trump's super PACs, it's called America First Action, has launched a website that looks like a news website. It's called the American Herald, and they claim that they are a news website. It's American-Herald.com if you want to check it out. And now, I'm not trying to promote it. I, obviously, uh, I don't think most of our listeners and viewers are going to be living over there. But you can, just, you can just see what's going on here. And this news platform now is being used to position, quote, news stories that can be pushed into social media, particularly Facebook. News stories that make it look like, you know, Trump is the savior of America and everybody else is evil. It's 
pretty breathtaking. And they have spent tens of millions of dollars on Trump's re-election campaign so far. This is, frankly, I think, an ominous sign. He's got much of the media cowed, and where he doesn't have the media cowed, he's creating his own media. Basically, what would you call it? State-run media? Meanwhile, we're seeing assaults here in Portland. The allegation, they haven't confirmed it, so the guy's name hasn't been released, but the allegation is that there's a local right-winger who's a former Navy SEAL who threw an IED at anti-Trump protesters last night in Portland. You know, an improvised explosive device, a pipe bomb. It's breathtaking what's going on and not being condemned from the White House or by anybody, any consequential Republican. Meanwhile, over in New Zealand, that they had gone 100 days without a new case of coronavirus. They had 23 active cases in the entire nation. All of them were in quarantine. And to the best of their knowledge, all of them had been people who got off planes from other countries in the last few months, the last three months. Well, the good news ended last night. Jacinda Ardern, the New Zealand prime minister, announced that one family, one household, just tested positive three people in that household in New Zealand. So they had gone 102 days without a single new case at the entire nation. This could be us, by the way, if we had taken this as seriously back in January as New Zealand did. This could be us. New Zealanders are going to soccer matches and filling the stands. New Zealanders are, the bars and restaurants are fully open. The economy is back to normal by and large, in New Zealand. Has been for months. But yesterday they announced that this one family had three coronavirus cases. So after three months, they've got one family with three cases. They have no idea how this family got this virus. They have not been traveling. They have locked down most of the country for the next three days until they figure out where the hell this virus came from so that they can do something about it. Now, that's a country that cares about its people. Here in the United States, we were sort of moving in that direction until April 7th. Back in the last weeks of March and the first week of April, Jared Kushner and his buddies in the White House actually had come up with a plan, a federal plan using federal dollars to test people, to push out testing equipment, to use the Defense Production Act to require the manufacture of testing kits, to get masks out to everybody. I mean, there, there was going to be a strong federal response to this. It was based in large part on the old handbook that the Obama administration left. And then came April 7th, and on April 7th, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and all the news agencies all across America reported for the very first time that the majority of deaths were happening among African Americans and Hispanics. And at that moment, at that point, as Vanity Fair has revealed in detail, Donald Trump and Jared Kushner and their buddies apparently sat down in the White House and said, hey, This is just killing black people, and it's only happening in blue states with Democratic governors and cities with Democratic mayors. Why are we trying to do anything about this? Let's just let it destroy them. This will work to our benefit politically. And thus, the entire program, the entire federal program in the United States to do something about this got deep-sixed, got killed. And to this day, we've got, you know, no federal program. We don't even have good federal reporting. The hospitals used to report their statistics to the Centers for Disease Control. This goes back to the 1950s. Trump said, no, you're going to report it to Health and Human Services. And Health and Human Services isn't even going to handle it. I got a billionaire buddy. He's got a company, a a data company. They're going to handle it. I think it's called Telelogic or something like that. And this private for-profit company that got a no-bid contract has totally screwed it up, or maybe they've done it exactly the way the Trump administration wanted. So even hospitals can't get good information anymore, much less state public health departments, much less, and probably most importantly from Trump's point of view, the media, the news agencies. Do you think he's going to pull this off?
Our book club selection today is Raghuram Rajan. It's titled The Third Pillar, How Markets and the State Leave the Community Behind. This is from the preface. We're surrounded by plenty. Humanity has never been richer as technologies of production have improved steadily over the last 250 years. And it's not just the developed countries that have grown wealthier. Billions across the developing world have moved from stressful poverty to a comfortable middle-class existence in the span of a generation. Income is more evenly spread across the world than at any other time in our lives. For the first time in history, we have it in our power to eradicate hunger and starvation everywhere. Yet even though the world has achieved economic successes that would have been unimaginable even a few decades ago, some of the seemingly most privileged workers in developed countries are literally worried to death. Half a million more middle-aged, non-Hispanic white American males died between 1999 and 2013 than if their death rates had followed the trend of other ethnic groups. The additional deaths were concentrated among those with a high school degree or less, and largely due to drugs, alcohol, and suicide. To put these deaths in perspective, it's as if 10 Vietnam Wars were simultaneously taking place, not in some faraway land, but in homes in small town and rural America. In an era of seeming plenty, a group that once epitomized the American dream seems to have lost hope. The anxieties of the moderately educated middle-aged white male in the United States are mirrored in other rich developed countries in the West, though perhaps with less tragic effects. The primary source of worry seems to be that moderately educated workers are rapidly losing, or are at risk of losing, good middle-class employment. And this has grievous effects on them, their families, and the communities they live in. It is widely understood that job losses stem from both global trade and the technological automation of old jobs. Less well understood is that technological progress has been the more important cause. Nonetheless, as public anxiety turns to anger, radical politicians see more value in attacking imports and immigrants. They propose to protect manufacturing jobs by overturning the liberal rules-based post-war economic order, the system that has facilitated the flow of goods, capital, and people across borders. There is both promise and peril in our future. The promise comes from new technologies that can help us solve our most worrisome problems like poverty and climate change. Fulfilling it requires keeping borders open so that these innovations can be taken to the most underdeveloped parts of the world, even while attracting people from foreign lands to support aging rich country populations. The peril lies not just in influential communities not being able to adapt and instead impeding progress, but also in the kind of society that might emerge if our values and institutions do not change as technology disproportionately empowers and enriches some. Every past technological revolution has been disruptive, prompted a societal reaction, and eventually resulted in societal change that helped us get the best out of technology. Since the early 1970s, we've experienced the information and communications technology revolution, the ICT revolution. It built on the spread of mass computing made possible by the microprocessor and the personal computer, and now includes technologies ranging from artificial intelligence to quantum computing, touching and improving areas as diverse as international trade and gene therapy. The effects of the ICT revolution have been transmitted across the world by increasingly integrated markets for goods, services, capital, and people. Every country has experienced disruption, punctuated by dramatic episodes like the global financial crisis in 2007-2008 and the accompanying Great Recession. We are now seeing the reaction in populist movements of the extreme left and right. What has not happened yet is the necessary societal change, which is why so many despair of the future. We are at a critical moment in human history when wrong choices could derail human economic progress. This book is about the three pillars that support society and how we get to the right balance between them so that society prospers. Two of the pillars I focus on are the usual suspects, the state and markets. Many forests have been consumed by books on the relationship between the two, some favoring the state and others markets. It is the neglected third pillar, the community, the social aspects of society that I want to reintroduce into the debate. When any of the three pillars weakens or strengthens significantly, typically as a result of rapid technological progress or terrible economic adversity like a depression, the balance is upset and society has to find a new equilibrium. The period of transition can be traumatic, but society has succeeded repeatedly in the past. The central question in this book is how we restore the balance between the pillars in the face of ongoing disruptive technological and social change. I will argue that many of the economic and political concerns today across the world, including the rise of populist nationalism 
and radical movements on the left can be traced to the diminution of community. The state and markets have expanded their powers and reached in tandem and left the community relatively powerless to face the full and uneven brunt of technological change. Importantly, the solutions to many of our problems are also to be found in bringing dysfunctional communities back to health, not in clamping down on markets. This is how we'll rebalance the pillars at a level more beneficial to society and preserve the liberal market democracies many of us live in. The book, The Third Pillar, How Markets and the State Leave the Community Behind. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.